we are walking through the book of Acts. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 5, it's 12 to 26, and the title for tonight's lesson is Another Revival. Um, let's just recap, bring everybody onto the same page quickly. Um, we've, we've been looking at a wonderful church that's just been flourishing. Um, the Holy Spirit has been guiding this church. The power of the Holy Spirit has been involved. The, the proclamation of the gospel started in the streets and it moved up to facing the very Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. The gospel has now been preached in all areas of Jerusalem. And then suddenly we, we find that there's this persecution that breaks out because Peter healed somebody at the gate called Beautiful, and that led to, to persecution, and they were tapped over the fingers, and so Satan is trying from outside to hurt the church. And last week we saw Satan realizes, hey, if I want to break down the church, what must I do? Get inside. Let me get inside. And so he uses Ananias and Sapphira, the text says, as we looked at last night, uh, last week, sorry, um, Peter says to Ananias, well, you know, how is it that you've allowed Satan to so fill your heart that you've come here and you've, you've told me this lie? Um, and if you want to go look at that or go listen to it on the website, you're welcome to do that. But Satan is attacking the church from inside through deception, through a lie. And we try to practically apply that and say, we've got to be very careful. Be very careful that you are not the person that Satan uses to get into the church and to hurt the church. So there's this person that brings Satan into the church. And, and what's interesting for me, as I shared with you last week, is um, just the comparison between the first couple to um, oppose God in Eden and the first couple to oppose God in the church. In Eden, it was Eve taking the lead to sin and Adam followed. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias takes the lead and Sapphira follows. And in both cases, the penalty would be death. In Genesis, the penalty for sinning against God is death, but it's prolonged, protracted. They eventually did die. They weren't going to die. And in the, the, the Acts account, there's immediate death. Like within three hours of Ananias dying, Sapphira dies. And, and, and it's sort of like the Holy Spirit is telling us here, look, um, it's worse to be the one to, um, to sin in the church than in the Garden of Eden. The judgment is severe, especially um, as this new church is being established. And so I think that there were other sin in the church as well that happened after that. And the, one of the key questions that we are asking as we're looking at the book of Acts is, why does Luke record these specific events? He records specific uh, miracles, and he records this specific sin that took place in the church. And the key is found for us in verse 5 and 11 that says, Great fear seized the whole church and all heard this. There was an example made of Ananias and Sapphira. I want the world to see forever what happens to you and how serious God takes it when you bring Satan into his church. That's the lesson. I'm going to make examples of Ananias and Sapphira. That's sort of, it's a stern warning that God is giving the church. And it's a stern warning that God is giving us tonight. That great discipline is necessary in God's church. It has to be. Now, now, just picture this for a moment. Hey guys, this is new Christian movement in Jerusalem. Um, did you hear about that guy who died? 
And three hours later, his wife died. Well, what did they do? Well, they lied. They said they got 100000 for the property when actually they got 150000 and got killed because of that. What would you do? Would you be like, yeah, I want to be a part of that church? It's like, no, I might make a mistake. I might tell a little white lie and end up dead. I don't know if I want to be a part of that. So you would expect that this church would dwindle, wouldn't you? Like, like, like if there's death, then surely it would, it would dwindle. And sometimes in the church, I'm definitely like this. It's like I avoid confrontation with people when it's about sin and, and difficult things. I avoid challenging them. Hey, man, you said that, that's, or you behaved in this way towards this brother. That's actually not scriptural. I try to avoid that. Why? Because you don't want to ruffle feathers. We want to keep the peace in the church. It's like, hey, apostles, couldn't you have just taken Ananias aside and said, dude, hey, you lied, man, and hey, that's ungodly, um, or just keep quiet and hope that it will blow over. And sometimes in the church we do that. Like we see somebody behaving badly, and we don't say anything. We hope that they'll just change on their own. And it will just blow over because we don't want confrontation. And we, so, so we want to keep the peace. But listen carefully. Sometimes keeping the peace is leaving Satan at peace. Sometimes leaving the peace is keeping Satan at peace. That person, Ananias, has been taken captive by Satan. And if you say nothing, guess who stays in the church? Ananias stays in the church and he keeps Satan with him. This is why it is important. Why we need to be honest with each other in love. When something happens or a person demonstrates character traits that is unchristlike, we have to talk to them about it. And I'm not saying we must strike them dead. We're not the Holy Spirit. Let God do that if He wants to. So, the question tonight as we go into this text is this. What happens to the church where people get killed for telling a white lie? What happens to that type of church? Because that's a crazy church. I don't, I don't know if I want to be a part of that church. All right, let's read what the text says. The next verses from verse 12. This is after the whole event. The two people have been buried. They sinned together. They were buried together. And the text continues. Luke tells us what happens next. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. It seems like they were still unified. No one else dared join them. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to... I'm going to be a part of you guys, okay? Even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the people would say, man, you are a unique group of people, but I don't know if I want to be a part of you. I mean, you are, it's like, I mean, we all know about you guys, okay? Nevertheless, listen to this. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Do you see that? A few comments. It's interesting for me that if you, if you go read chapter 2, verse 43, the same idea comes to the surface. That fear and awe, because remember, the first time we hear this church fearing, Phobos, was in the previous verses. Why did they fear? 
Well, because somebody died, a Christian died simply for lying, I would fear too. But this fear precipitated powerful healings and miracles. That tells me that it's good for us to fear. It's good for us to be scared of God. It sort of it precipitates powerful things that God will do. The same spirit that powerfully caused the death of deceitful Christians, the same spirit is now healing the lives of genuine people looking for Christ. It's interesting how this powerful spirit of God, the dunamis, has the ability to kill and to heal. And so we see that powerfully play throughout the book of Acts. The church, once again, is of one mind, right? They're, they, they, they're probably at the temple. They're there to worship. It doesn't mean that they are permanently there, but they meet for worship times, uh, which is a wonderful sight. And it's an interesting situation for me. Because you look at the public or the other people who are not part of the movement, it's like, we don't want to join you. And the Greek word is very interesting because it says, but we magnify you. So magnifying glass. We exalt you. We make you big and we make you important. That's how the public viewed this church. We want to join, but we fear for our lives. I'm scared that if I join, I'm going to end up dead. Make sense? I mean, because, you know what, I, I tell a white lie now and then. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, would you want to be part of a church where the all, you know, the, the, the seven eyes of God, you know, like Revelation talks about, like looks at you the whole time, sees every move in you? You come to the apostles, and the apostle says to you, uh, I know what you did, bro. <laughs> yeah. I know what you thought last night. Because that's sort of the idea that we see when, when, when Peter... Um, takes on Ananias. It's like, I know what you do. I know what you're lying, man. Like, I would also be scared of joining that type of movement. I was thinking about this. Isn't that exactly what people, what most people battle with in coming to Christ? It's like, yeah, I believe. There's something about Jesus. I have to, I have to be honest. I, I, I do believe, but to actually become a Christian, that's where I'm struggling because that would mean what? I've got to give up my life. I've got to be willing to give up my life. They were in a peculiar challenge here. If you want to be a Christian, you must be willing to die potentially. I think it's a great place to be. Christianity is true and great. We have it a lot in our society. I will send my, Christians to a, my, my kids to a Christian school, but me myself, I don't want to be a disciple because I like my life too much. I like my life. And if I'm going to join this group, it would mean that I have to really change myself. I can't be part of this and be a liar and be deceitful. That's clearly what I learned through Ananias and Sapphira. Whereas, so we've got to be very careful that we create a Christianity where deceitfulness is allowed. Because that's why the churches produce weak disciples of Christ. Because we allow it. Because there's no discipline. And so we become weak Christians, weak churches, weak people. We can be glad that we don't find ourselves in a place like Iran or Iraq, where you literally will be killed for your faith. So anyways, despite this fear, the text says the church grew. The Greek says 
multitudes joined. That's the, what the Greek indicates to us there. So, listen carefully. Discipline, confrontation, pain, and even death made the church grow. I'll repeat that. Because this is what we think. Well, if we're going to discipline in our church, people are just going to leave. No, that's not what we see here. Discipline, pain, and even death made the church grow and go to the next level. We call it cleansing. There needs to be cleansing. Um, you know, we call it boil removal. You've got a big boil, you have to take it out. Why? Because it will poison your whole body. Um, I, I had a, uh, you know, we've got um, family and we stayed on a farm and we went to go hunting on the farm and the whole weekend, I didn't, I didn't uh, well, the Saturday, I think I hunted, and we were four guys, and on this whole um, piece of property, probably about, I don't know, I don't know how to translate it, two, three thousand acres of land, there were two animals, and this is African bush, there were two animals that we were allowed to hunt, okay, because the, 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 the guy who owns the, the animals, he doesn't just want any animals to be shot, so he said there's one big kudu bull, if you've ever seen a kudu, it's a beautiful animal, that's jumped over the fence. So he didn't pay for him. This, this was a wild one that jumped over the fence. You can shoot him. There's lots of meat there. And then the other one was a female or a, or a um, uh, what do you call a female uh, cow? A cow nyala. And what the, what the Africans do in Africa is that they would come onto your property at night and they would, they would put um, snares. Yes, snares in the grass and in the walkways where the, or what do you call it, tracks where the, where, where the, the deer would walk and the, their feet would get caught up with it. And, and this particular one, they've seen a few times here and there, it, it didn't walk that well. And so they picked up, it's got a snare in its foot. So, so normally the foot would be about that big, but because it had a snare, um, the foot was like that big. And it's probably, I would say, the animal's about the same size as your, these guys that run around here. What, what are these, white tails? What are these cats? Black tails. Yeah, these guys. So it's about the same size. So now, it's like this massive bush and this massive mountain, and he says you're only allowed to shoot those two animals. Do you think that's possible? So the whole Saturday we're hunting. We see nothing. We don't even see one other. We see every other animal on the planet. We didn't even know those animals existed on this farm. But those two we're allowed to shoot, we can't get. So, um, so Sunday, Sunday morning, I go preach. The other guys are hunting. At about lunchtime, I get out, and um, I'm, I'm still in my preaching clothes, you know, much like this. Hey, but I've got like six hours, five hours left before the sun sets. I also want to still try and see if I can shoot something. And we, I, I stand at the bottom of the mountain. I look at the mountain like this, and I say, you know, I'm going to go for that corner over there. I'm just going to walk up this mountain. I'm going to go left. And there's a teenage girl, the owners of the place who walked with me. And I thought, well, this is a good mentoring opportunity. And you won't believe it. We walk like 200 yards. And I hear in the, in the, you guys who hunt, you know the sound when you hear there's like an animal feeding, scratching around. And, and here's, here's an Yala doe and she's standing. I'm telling you from here to the, to the wall. Now, we are, I'm, I'm on my haunches like this. You don't want to move because you know how these animals are. They see you blink and they run away. And this girl's here. I say, hey, you, you better relax. And now I'm, I'm waiting to see. I can't see its feet. 
but I have to make sure that this is the one that's injured. What's the chances out of that whole mountain, out of like 2,000 yards, that are, are, are acres that I would find the one? And the foot came up, and I saw that big swollen foot. And I said, thank you, Lord. And then it was like, to get, to get the gun aimed and move down with your head into the scope, that took like half an hour. Sweat dripping. Sweat dripping, because you've got to go slow, one movement at a time. And this thing looks at, and I don't know if you've seen deer, they don't stop looking at you. He's not going to look away, scratch his shoulder quickly. No, he looks at you. And he looks at you like this. He doesn't move. Anyways, nice headshot. And pick up this animal and got it to carry this animal down the mountain. It was insane. I was screaming and shouting and using all kinds of words. Get down to the house. Hang it up. Start opening it up. And a smell came out of that animal that you've never smelled in your life. We looked at the liver. We looked at the lungs. This animal was rotten with disease, with, with blood poisoning from that foot. It is so interesting how if we allow in the church a rotten foot to hang around, it will poison the whole body. We couldn't eat that animal. We had to let it go. This is why discipline is extremely important. This is, why, this is why what happens here in Acts chapter 5 is like, God is like saying, we've got to cut it off now. Cut off the whole thing. Let them die right there. Otherwise, we're going to have a rotten church. We have to do it now. So sometimes the church needs pruning. If you don't prune it, it's not going to grow. We're scared to prune because we think it's going to cut off a branch and we're going to shrink. Pruning doesn't let the church shrink. It doesn't. Sometimes people need to go in order for the church to grow. This is hard to say. Sometimes people need to go because they poison the church. Sometimes they need to die. And that's what we see happens here. The question that came to mind, my mind is, how did they switch from being cowards, because they were cowards, oh, we don't want to join this church. They are great, but we don't. How did they switch from being cowards to being warriors for Jesus? What made them switch and say, okay, the church is great, I don't want to join too. Okay, yes, I want to join. What happened? I'm not sure. I think the miracles were undeniable. And I think if you keep on seeing the miracles of Christ over and over again, you start realizing, I think God is here. And then you start saying, okay, maybe I need to reconsider myself. I'd, I'd rather be on God's side and sit alone without Him. This is my suggestion. When their excitement for God's presence overwhelmed their fear for the unknown, was the moment that they made the switch, in my opinion. When their excitement for God's presence overwhelmed their fear for the unknown. The text continues. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Wow. What's striking for me here is the words beds and mats, and I think it's significant. The word used here for beds refers to the beds of the wealthy. The wealthy slept on klinon. 
It's the Greek word. It's a soft, padded bed, and only the wealthy had that. And the poorest slept on the krabaton, which is translated here as mats, couches. Krabaton. It's the bed that's got crabs in it. <laughs> that's the way I can remember it. So what's interesting for me here is I want you to picture this. Jerusalem. Okay? And you see even the wealthy who can afford doctors are dragging out their wealthy beds with their wealthy people and bringing them into the streets. Can you imagine what this looked like? We think that Christianity is just for the poor. Jesus just came for the poor. Is, why is it always when we say, hey, are we going to do something in community? Let's go feed the poor. Why is that always what we say? Hey, let's go to the people living in tents on the street. That's not what we see happen in the early church. And to be honest with you, with my entire life in the church, some of the greatest Christians have been among the wealthy as well, not just the poor. So both the wealthy and the poor need Jesus. I also find it powerful, and we've spoken about this a few times, is that you know, these people are saying, okay, so... It seems like Peter was so busy with the crowd that people couldn't get, get to him. But they sort of knew, okay, Peter's going to have to this afternoon. Maybe he's going to come walk down this road. Let's position our sick friend on the street in such a way that at least the sun, when it's coming from that side, and Peter walks here, that at least the, the head of the shadow might pass over our friend and heal him. I think that's, that's incredible. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us that Peter's shadow actually healed people. Um, but what the text does tell us is this. The people believed in the power of the Holy Spirit through Peter. The people believed that. They had that type of faith. And I will not be surprised when I get to heaven one day and God says, yeah, actually, his shadow did heal people because of the faith of the people. The text says earlier that the Holy Spirit chose the hands of the apostles through whom to perform these miracles. In, in the Greek, that's what it indicates. The hands of the apostles healed people, drove out demons, uh, removed impure spirits. Can you imagine trying to set, set up your loved one in a position to receive a shadow? Can you imagine that? I move his bed a little bit, and then the guy stands, and he stands in the street, and he sees where the shadow goes. He says, okay, now move the bed a little bit here. How tall is Peter? Hopefully Peter was quite tall, because then it would stretch a little bit further, right? I think that is, that is crazy. So, and what I, what I also find interesting is that, I mean, I think there's so, I mean, when we go through these stories, there's so much figurativeness in here. Think about it. Peter stands between you and the sun. Think about it. The sun shines on Peter, and his shadow heals you. Without the sun, there's no shadow. Without the Son of God, there is no healing. I think there's so much to, to play with here. The sun that shines on Peter is your salvation, because it creates the shadow that heals your life. Incredible. And the news had spread to nearby towns. Look there, verse 16. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem. And they bring their sick, and it's, and it's, and it's people tormented by impure spirits. Um, so it's, it's people that are physically sick and mentally sick. 
Um, it's people that are spiritually sick. Unclean spirits. We spoke about it um, this morning. These are evil beings. Possessed people. And did you see what the text says? Those last few words. All of them were healed. Incredible. This is a revival. A very powerful. I mean, this is just everywhere in the streets in Jerusalem. It's from Solomon's colonnade to the streets and the towns nearby. Everybody's just coming. This is, this is just the spirit is moving here in Jerusalem. Verse 17 to verse 20 says, and here's the big question. Because remember, the church had some buddies up in the higher rankings. How did they view this? Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. The high priest and all his associates. Who would like to guess who this was? We don't know, but it's one of two guys. It's Annas or Caiaphas, one of those two guys. Is this the first time they encounter Peter? No. Is this the first time they encounter the Jesus movement? No. These guys had seen Jesus face to face and rejected him and handed him over to be crucified. The same guys. Peter and John had preached before the same guys two chapters earlier. This is not the first time they encountered the, this Christian movement. I find it um, interesting because they, I think they reach a point here where they say, we've had enough now. Remember, previously they warned them and said, hey, don't speak any longer in this name. And they continued to preach the same way. Now, he seems to have been a Sadducee. Did you know that? If you read the text, it seems like he was a Sadducee. And him and his Sadducees buddies are fed up. The text actually says in the Greek, not that they were jealous. That's sort of a transliteration, or, or that's more an interpretation that the NIV does, but they were filled with zeal. That's what it means. They were filled with zeal. Zeal for what, do you think? It's like they hear the apostles are doing this and the miracles are happening, and this preaching that goes with it, why are they filled with zeal? Zeal for what? They were zealous for their doctrine. Their doctrine. What's their doctrine? The resurrection of the dead. Right? The Sadducees didn't believe people get resurrected from the dead. And the, we told these guys to keep quiet about it, but they continued talking about it. And now they are healing people, and people from the towns are running in. Nobody wants to leave these guys alone, and they keep on preaching the same stuff. We told them to keep quiet. They don't want to keep quiet, so they keep on spreading a message that contradicts our doctrine. We are the leaders of this nation. We're the Sanhedrin. We are the big cats of the Israelites. They are ignoring us. And so this message, you can imagine from their perspective, it's like this false message is spreading like gangrene. And you know why they believe this? Because they held strictly onto the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which doesn't really talk about a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament like we understand it. And there's many other verses that do seem to indicate a resurrection. 
And so that's why there was this debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more conservative. They said, no, we only trust the stuff written by Moses because we received the law from him. So we don't believe in the resurrection. And anybody who believes in these types of things, they are false teachers and they reject the law of Moses. That's what's the debate that was going on. Why were they zealous? They were zealous over their doctrine because they believed that the apostles were preaching an incorrect, incorrect message and now thousands of people were following this and they were listening to this. But I do think that this interpretation is correct. I do believe that they were jealous as well because now there were more people believing in a doctrine that they didn't, they didn't teach. The crowds were falling away from them. So, and what made it more difficult for them, can you imagine this? What made it even more difficult for these Sadducees was that it seemed like God is on their side. Because the miracles are there, you can't deny it. They saw the man that was born lame standing in the Sanhedrin. So, they don't know how to deal with this. These guys are preaching a different doctrine. The crowds are following them. And it seems like God is actually there. I don't know how to deal with this. How do you deal with a movement that contradicts your doctrine, but clearly has God's blessing? How do you deal with that? We're going to talk about that in a moment's time. It says that they were taken to the prison, the, common, the public jails, the common prison. Why? Because there's greater security and greater disgrace. I find it also a play on words that they lay hands. The original language says they lay hands on the apostles. They lay hands on them, grab them, and threw them in prison. If the roles could just be reversed, why don't you let the apostles lay hands on you, and you can be taken out of your prison? Speak all the words of this life. Look at that. Tell the people about this new life. That's the message of the gospel it's incredible. Christianity is not a religion. It is a way of life. And he says to him, go tell these people what this life is about and go preach it where? Go preach it where the people are. Where are they? Well, they're by the temple courts. This, the angel is telling them to, do, to, to stand in direct defiance and opposition to the Sanhedrin. God is rebuking the leadership the religious leadership of the people of Israel. Now, oh, throat is dying here. Did you guys, did you guys see anything in the news about the Asbury revival? Brother DeMilt, <laughs> I saw this Two weeks ago, I think it was not this mo Monday, the previous Monday, at Asbury University, they went into the chapel. They've got chapel every Monday morning, apparently. This is a university, a Christian university, and I think it's mainly Methodist, I think. They went in, I think, at 10 o'clock, and it was just like a 45-minute like, chapel service, like pray and, and a lesson. And, and, and the people say it was nothing major. And after the service, they said, okay, so... Um, hey, we're going to continue, like there was a, like a band, just like, I think they said there was one guitar player, singer, and somebody with a drum or something, or beatbox or whatever, and they said, I, we're just going to sing a few more songs if you want to stay, you're welcome to hang around for a little bit, and some students stayed behind, and they started singing. Guess what? 
they never went to class for the last two weeks. They call it the Asbury Revival. I'm going to show you some of the newspaper uh, things, not newspaper, well, the internet newspaper clippings. Non-stop worship service at Kentucky College, set to end after attracting thousands. I read just now on Facebook that somebody just flew in from Austria. Thank you, Mama. Baby. Somebody flew in from Austria for this. People from all over the country have ran to Kentucky, to this town, because they want to participate in this thing they call this revival. This is not a Pentecostal movement, ladies and gentlemen. These are conservative people. Very much, uh, I think there's Catholicism involved as well. Another one, this is, you can see there, there's old, old is it Tucker Colson, or what is his name? Kentucky Church had to open overflow chapels to accommodate demand. It's just too many people. Asbury Revival sparks movements at other Christian colleges. Holy Spirit is at work. This is in the mainline news. Asbury University addresses public safety concerns. Schedules end of revival on cap campus. They've got to schedule an end to this thing. Because the town can't operate. There's just people everywhere. It's apparently a small town. Asbury University to end non-stop revival service. Lists new guidelines and schedule. And Jesus was right next to me, one person. Asbury, Asbury Revival sets Catholics on fire with the Holy Spirit. You know, and a non-stop worship gathering at a Kentucky school echoes an old Christian tradition. Asbury Professor, we're witnessing a surprising work of God. Now, when I read these things, and I, I saw this the first time, and I saw some of the videos, and there's lots of videos of these people worshiping, and it's a very basic like auditorium, and they're just worshiping there, and they just keep on going. It's, it's not Pentecostal at all. What do you think was going on in my mind? What goes on in your mind right now? My first thought was exactly the same as the Sadducees, to be honest with you. There must be a loophole here. Where is the evidence that that is God doing that? That can't be God. Because I guarantee you their doctrine isn't correct. Their doctrine isn't like mine. That's the first thing that came to my mind. I want to find a way to discredit what is happening there. Because no ways. God can only work in line with everything I believe and understand in my doctrine. God is confined to my set of doctrines and beliefs. It's imp that's not God. That must be Satan. I'll be honest with you. That's what I think. That's how I'm wired to think. This cannot be of God. These guys, they're Methodists and Catholics. God doesn't work among those people. And then I, I, I thought to myself, I thought back to the roots of our beautiful tradition and our heritage. And I went and researched quickly. Do you know that our roots, the, the, the restoration movement was founded upon revival meetings? And guess where? <laughs> Kentucky. It's a chicken place. Seems to attract like, I don't know. Have you ever read of the Cane Ridge Revival? So I went and read up on the Cane Ridge Revival. Barton W. Stone. 
He was one of the key preachers there. They say that tens of thousands of people came to that revival. They expected like maybe 500 people that attend outside, and suddenly there were just many people. They had to put up like pulpits made out of wood all over the place, and there were like 10 different preachers preaching all the time. Very similar to this situation. And guess what? Most of those preachers were Presbyterian, inclusive of Barton W. Stone. He was a Presbyterian preacher. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's like interesting how this happens at the same time as I deal with the text. Because I definitely, I'm not approving what's happening out there. Okay, I don't know what's happening there. But I don't want to be like a Sadducee that refuses to accept when God is doing something in the world. Because it doesn't align with my doctrine. God can do what He wants. And He can work in people who He wants, how much He wants, and how often He wants. And if He wants to pull people together in Asbury, whatever the people believe, I don't even know the people, then He can do that. I just don't want to be on the side that actually opposes what God is busy doing. We need to be humble. We're saying things like, oh, we don't say it, but we think it sometimes. God is on our side. He's not on theirs. Oh, be careful. The Sadducees did that, and they were founded upon solid doctrine. We've got the Torah. The resurrection doesn't happen. The first five books of the Bible, we're doctrinally correct, so it's impossible that God can do any other work. We just don't know how the Holy Spirit works. He's like the wind. He goes where He wants and He does what He wants. And we must be careful to try and confine Him. Remember the old um, restoration movement saying, my brother DeMilt, we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. And I think there's validity in that. And we must keep that in mind. Okay, done with this side note. Let's close this. At daybreak, verse 21. And so the angel says to them, you need to go preach about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told. It's like, it's like early in the morning, we're going, we're going to go preach. We don't care what the Sanhedrin says. And they began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and he sent and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. Duh. So they went back and reported. Dude, I, I, you know, we found the jail securely locked. So they didn't break out of the jail with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. You know, we spoke this morning about angels. It seems like, it seems like there's something I missed this morning. How did these physical bodies get out of this prison because it was still locked and the gods didn't see anything so it's as if peter was maybe made invisible and made a shapeshifter without him even knowing it i don't know the text says on hearing this report the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss yeah i would i would too wondering what this might lead to then someone came and said <laughs> the plot thickens. Hey, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. I thought you left them in chains. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Firstly, the text says, like, 
the whole Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel came together. Ladies and gentlemen, the top dogs. This is not just the Sanhedrin. Hey, let's call the elders of the land as well. Let's pull them in. It's fascinating. If God wanted Peter in front of this audience, he would have had him there. Why does God say, no, I don't want you in the Sanhedrin again. You've been there before. I don't want you before all the elders of the land anymore. You know, these guys don't listen. I want you to be among the people. There by the temple courts. I want the word to move among the common people. The leaders have had their chance. Nobody took them out of prison except God. And that's what these guys couldn't deal with. Because the church didn't break them out. Because if the church broke them out, the, the chains and stuff would have been broken. Okay? The guards didn't uh, do it. Because otherwise they wouldn't have been there. They would have fled for their lives because they would be killed. As we see later on in the book of Acts. And so there's no explanation. And these guys are sitting here, oh my goodness, this must have been God. It's the only way. How it happens, I don't know. And then the, the text says, well, what, would this, what this might lead to? That was their great fear. What would happen if, you know, the more we try to stop it, the more it grows and the stronger their case becomes. These guys were perplexed. They didn't know what to do. They had lost authority. God opposed them through a miracle. Their doctrine was proven false and no longer regarded. And not even prison walls could stop these guys. What do you do? You can't beat them. They were helpless and they were hopeless. When I read this, I felt sorry for Trump. President Trump. Those of you who are getting excited for a political speech, I'm sorry. No political speech. It's interesting for me here that these guys are preaching in the public sphere and there's lots of people around them and then the Sanhedrin bring their cops and they arrive there. They say, come guys, we've got to go to the Sanhedrin. Don't know how you escaped out of prison, but come. The text says they, they weren't arrested. How do you think they convinced them to go? Because if I was Peter, I would say, hey, bro, don't mess with me. I've got angels backing me up. They'll break you, bro. What do you think they did? They said, okay, you want us to go with you? Okay, we'll go with you. Peacefully. What do you think makes them feel so at peace to go with them? Well, they serve a God who can break them out of prisons. They don't fear the Sanhedrin. They don't fear nothing. But one thing they knew is, if they resisted the soldiers, what would have happened? The crowd would have joined in. And it would have, return, it would have turned into some type of um, riot. Clever apostles. Trusting God. I wish that we had presidents like that. Let's say, for example, Trump had that mentality. Instead of wanting to prove that the, the, the ballots were false or whatever the case may be, he just said, okay, you know what? I'll trust in God. If anything is false, God will reveal it, and God will sort this out. I hope that you've got that type of trust in your life, that God will sort things out. You don't have to fight for your justice. You leave that in the hands of God. He will do what is right. He'll take care of you. You've been paid less than you should have been. Don't worry. God will sort you out. He will pay back the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel says. Let him handle it. The apostles knew. They've seen the power of God in their lives. They weren't scared of the Sanhedrin or the soldiers, but they cared about the souls of people. That's what they cared about. And they wanted peace. 
Thank you, apostles. Now, let me close up. Is there salvation in your shadow? Does the sun shine on you so that you can bring healing to people's lives, those who come across your path? Do you feel that you are a balm that gives people comfort when they come in contact with you? Secondly, the poor and the rich need Jesus. That poor person has got nothing. And yes, it might be easier for him to say, yeah, I need God. But the poor have other problems. They've got drugs. They've got other things that really make it difficult for them to come to God. The wealthy, the wealthy have also realized they can't live without God. Because they've got the money and they realize it doesn't fill the void. And they need God as well. Let's not count anybody out. If somebody is in front of you, it doesn't matter if they're intelligent or unintelligent. If they are highly educated or have no education, they need Jesus. It doesn't matter who they are. And thirdly, before you reject someone, make 100% sure God rejects them too. Be very careful of rejecting people that God does not reject. And I'm referring to the Asbury revival as an example. Lastly, don't fear being God's puppet. Now, when I looked at these poor apostles, I mean, just, just go through the story again and imagine you, Peter. Okay? It's like, we're preaching. Oh, thrown into prison. Okay. Oh, an angel comes and saves us. Now we're out of prison again. Okay, now you go preach there. Okay, we'll go preach there. Oh, the soldiers arrive. Oh, now we've got to go back to the Sanhedrin. What do you see? <laughs> Who's controlling these guys? God is. And God is telling them what to do. If you ever want to be controlled by somebody, God is the one that has got the right and the authority to do so. And it will be glorious when He controls your life. Sometimes it feels like life shunts us around. It's okay. Do we belong to Him? He knows what He's doing. It's good to be His puppet. He will use us powerfully. Let's pray.